Picturing Buddy licking, <laughs> licking the fucking rice pudding is just lying butt so naked, funny, man. So funny. You're listening to a podcast created by the Jacksway Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. All right, so uh, here we are. We're actually one man down today. Uh, we have lost our comrade Gordon. <laughs> He's away on a vacation or a school trip or whatever it happens to be. To replace to replace Gordon, we actually have the Honorable Brendan from Honorable Vancouver. Yeah, we actually. I just I just did the reveal to my mom that um, you came out as a podcast. podcaster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Much, much to my surprise, the first thing that my mom said when I told her about the theme of the podcast was, oh, my God, did you guys read any Nietzsche? I love Nietzsche. <laughs> like, okay, mom. So anyways, yeah, I'm now out of the closet. My parents seem to, um, you know, still still accept me, but they haven't heard it yet. So that's uh, that's still up in the air. <laughs> I mean, actually, I never even asked you if you told your parents or not, Oliver. Uh, yeah, they know. Because like the mic, they saw the mic. Oh, of course, of course, <laughs> tough to hide that one. <laughs> and of course, this is okay, like well. the gateway drug. You start with podcasts, and then you go on to radio shows. Going from there, oh, just like chasing the dragon. <laughs> this is a this is a mere first step. I'm sorry to have brought you into this, Brendan, but yeah, I'm ready for the slow decline decline into an incomeless art. <laughs> Yeah, of course, but uh, there's, of course it's not about the income, you know, it's not, we do, we'll eventually go after that sweet, sweet Amazon affiliate revenue or maybe the Squarespace advertising, but um, <laughs> we're not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah, so anyways, welcome uh, to the podcast. Happy to have you. Brendan uh, actually works uh, works with me in Vancouver and uh, a former shadowy of mine who is now gone on to occupy a higher position in the company than I have. So uh, Higher is um, relative you know, there. Uh, take what you will from that and um yeah so brendan why don't you tell us a little bit about the short story that you brought for us today tell us a little bit about the author and why you chose it in the first place and then um we usually ask uh, for a brief summary to uh, start the discussion yeah so in the penal colony i remember reading it for the first time when i was like 15 or 16 and of course when you're a teenager you think that anything with any amount of edge is just like the coolest piece of literature you've ever read and um, <laughs> for anybody listening who might not know the penal colony it's about this foreign traveler that uh, goes to this quote-unquote penal colony surprise surprise where they have this uh, extremely intricate machine that essentially tortures people to death based off of their sentencing. It inscribes it into their flesh deeper and deeper with each passing, uh, uh, with each pass. And um, yeah, essentially like bleeds them out dry. They also sustain their life for as long as possible while in the machine uh, with a little bit of rice pudding. And of course, as a kid who was listening to heavy metal music, I was like, this is the dopest thing I've ever read. It's, it's probably not the dopest thing, but it, it is a really interesting piece of literature in the fact that it kind of goes into these themes of uh, civilization versus savagery and the removal from civilization uh, with implications towards uh, people's true natures and, of course, the nature of human beings. Uh, of course, there's a lot more information that can be gleaned from it, which we will probably dive into with our discussion. But as a kid, I just remember reacting very strongly to it as a piece of literature that was extremely upfront with its motives 
And uh, Kafka, of course, is an author that goes into some extremely grotesque imagery uh, that's extremely thought-provoking. Uh, and it was just something that really resonated at a point where the subtleties of literature was something that was somewhat lost of me. Having something that was so open with its nature made it something easy to latch onto, and I've revisited it multiple times just because of the um, the more nuanced nature that's behind this more openly grotesque face. Sweet. Well, that's uh, quite the comprehensive summary. I think we have many, <laughs> many a launching point to uh, to get off from there. Um, was this uh, was is this the only Kafka that you have read? Or have you read, read any of his other books? Or um, and if um, so, how does it relate? Of course, I've, I've read the Metamorphosis. Um, I, I had like a collection of his short stories where the Penal Colony was the one that, like I said, I latched onto the most and uh, was the one that lasted with me. But both the Penal Colony and the Metamorphosis deal with writing about uh, certain topics with this extremism in mind, and that extremism makes it something that's uh, very opaque in nature and something that's easy to uh, kind of take in from first glance. Um, but yeah, exploring the nuance of these two pieces of literature is something that is an interesting discussion because it creates that uh, perfect starting point for discussion with the extremism in the subject matter it covers. Cool. So, uh, yeah, of course, there's a lot there. One of the first things that, that we normally do when we uh, tackle a short story is just kind of give a brief you know, look at each of the characters in the story and the roles that they play, and maybe just some general thoughts on each of those. This should be pretty easy for us to cover all of them in the story since there are so few. But Oliver, maybe do you want to start off with, with each of our characters, maybe introduce some of them, or if there's any one specific that you want to focus on to start, uh, let's use that to begin the discussion. Yeah, sure. So looks like in our document, we have six characters, but would you guys consider the apparatus as a character in this story or just a machine or like a prop? That's interesting because I think four of those six characters I already mentioned don't actually speak at all in the, in the story. So clearly speaking um, or having lines of dialogue is not a prerequisite to be considered a character in the story. So if you're going to use those criteria, then yeah, why not? It certainly plays a very big role. In, um, in moving the plot along. And it actually may be the quote-unquote character that undergoes the most, or if not the second most, amount of transformation uh, throughout the beginning and the end of the story, through its just deterioration as an already kind of run-down machine to something that is just totally on its last legs, broken, malfunctioned, and is basically ready to uh, you know just go onto the trash heap. So, yeah, I would throw it in. What do you think? I like its involvement in the story as a character in the way that it sort of interacts with the officer. I feel like they have a relationship there where the machine itself isn't just like a representation of these past ideologies, but like um, as in being that representation of the past ideologies, it's always going to manifest itself in a type of dialogue. Even just by existing as a symbol of those past ideologies, it is in contrast to present ideologies. Thus, there is that sort of implicit dialogue between the machine and the subjects who are witnessing it. Interesting. I actually, just to build off that, I think that one of the, I don't know the right word for it, but one of the interesting things about this story is the way in which each of the characters seem to be reduced to just 
one thing. In the case of the officer, he is very much reduced to his relationship with this machine. Um, I think he even goes as far as saying that the machine is the most cherished thing that he possesses, um, or at least the instructions of how to use the machine. And you can see that with other characters as well, um, <clears throat> specifically the... What is it? just the the, the, the condemned, condemned the condemned yeah you got yeah, it. he's like obsessed he is, with it exactly and he is also so there's two things here one is each of these have a very different relationship with the apparatus and also to get back to that point of reduction that the condemned man is very much reduced to the crime that he has committed and in uh, it goes as far as actually tattooing that crime right onto his body and I guess that's the whole point of the torture machine itself is to you know, draw or just in, inscribe onto someone this singular act that they have committed. And so, so much of the individual character's personal identity is wrapped up in one specific thing or one specific act or one specific item. And uh, you could even just go as far as saying that each of the characters themselves don't even have names, but are merely titled by the role that they play in the plot. And so, yeah, I think that the interesting, if you're going to consider the machine as a character or the apparatus or the torture device, whatever you want to call it. It's also interesting to see each of the characters relationship with that machine. Both of you have already touched on that one. Like you said, the officer, it being such a core part of his own identity and Oliver, like you said, the condemned when he's also, I don't know, maybe we should talk a little bit more about his relationship with it. Cause I got some weird vibes between the um, condemned and the machine. Yeah. There was some points where, he would just kind of lurk over the machine and just kind of stare at it in a kind of confused look. Mm-hmm. Um, I was confused at his motives there. And again, he doesn't, he doesn't say any words. Um, what do you guys think of, think of him as a character? Do I, I, okay, I'll, I'll chime in on this one because I, when I read this story, the reason why I think these characters have such a general quality to them uh, from the fact that they don't have names, they don't have identifying characteristics. Like, you can't physically describe any of the characters. And then, you know, you can only really describe these certain these certain aspects that these characters have been minimalized to, uh, these certain traits. To me, that's because they're all meant to be a representation of a different aspect of society. So you have the traveler who's supposed to be representative of the civilized aspect of society, uh, you have the old commandant as like the um, the more primal aspect of society. The new commandant as like the sophistication that's meant to eradicate that previous ideology. And of course, like the officer as the um, as the individual that carries out the will of society. Like to me, each character is meant to be representative of a different aspect of that as society moves through an ideological shift. And I think for the condemned. Uh, the way that he reacts uh, to the machine itself and interacts with the machine throughout the piece uh, is there's like this um, very uh, almost like macabre, m- uh, morbid fascination with what the machine entails and what it represents. So it's it's very much the same way that we would look back at certain past atrocities with that uh, that fascination as to how it could happen, how it was permitted to happen. And what it meant about us at that period of time. I like it, Oliver. What do you think? Yeah, it's. Uh, I like that thought too. He also uh, gets really excited when the officer gets strapped down, <laughs> or he helps strap him down. Right. Like, how would you explain his reaction to 
the person condemning him in the first place having, you know, justice, quote unquote, reversed onto him um, and he gets his own freedom. His first thought is to stick around, right? Um, and he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to help the officer out of the machine. He wants to kind of watch his condemner um, be condemned himself. Like his immediate uh, reaction to being freed is to actually just like engage in the same kind of um, and then take the same kind of enjoyment out of the punishment that he was just 30 seconds ago being condemned to, right? But are we so sure that that's what it was, that it was a, a sadistic enjoyment about watching someone go through the same experience that he was going to? Or can we it's just assumed that it might be a kind of blissful, willing ignorance where he just he doesn't really understand the full extent of what the machine does because he's portrayed at various points of trying to understand it and not having the same understanding of the machine that the traveler does, which is talked to a language barrier. But that language barrier, of course, could be representative of any other type of separation between the two, whether it be from a level of intelligence or a level of understanding of societal concepts. I don't, I'm not so sure that he's, getting any type of joy from watching the uh, officer go through the same sort of torture that he was previously condemned to. I honestly think he might not understand the connotation and the full extent of the machine and what it means and could just be reacting to these um, social prompts. Well, that's, that's interesting too, because um, I think leading up to that point, again, it's so hard to say because he doesn't actually have any lines of dialogue. But I got the sense that he was kind of, um, I don't know, want to say dim, but so often he's kind of looking at the machine or just peering over the ledge to look down and he's trying to figure out what is going on in front of him. And you're right, he just, he just can't fully grasp this thing that he's about to be put into. So in a way, I would, uh, he just, he, yeah, maybe he just cannot fully understand what A, he has been freed from and um, what the officer has now condemned himself to as well. Yeah, he was a tough character to understand because I thought, I honestly just thought he was like kind of dumb. Um, yeah, because he's he's described as a dog-like in the first page. And I guess he does, he falls asleep at his post, right? So he's not the most sharp, the most sharp guy as well. Yeah, I don't know. How do we think, or how do we feel about his original condemnation in the first place? I thought one of the most interesting things was like the the sense of justice in the penal colony in the first place. Like there is no trial, there is no, you know, questioning period, no opportunity for him to defend himself. It is just no holds barred. You have been accused, you are guilty, and that is it. Your sentence will be tattooed upon you, and you will receive this punishment as justice, no questions asked. How do we feel about that? One of the things that I found interesting was the choice of making it such an unambiguous crime as well. It's not like there was a way of the condemned arguing that he didn't do what he was accused of doing. So what that allows you to do is focus on the extremity of the uh, of the punishment and the process of the condemning and really focus on the shortcomings of those processes. So the question is not whether or not he is guilty and whether or not you know a trial would prove him innocent. It is, does the punishment fit the crime? And does it? 
What do you think, Oliver? Do you think this guy deserves to uh, be tortured for 12 hours for falling asleep at the uh, I thought it was post? funny. I thought it was funny how the uh, soldier guarding him falls asleep throughout the story. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That was actually really funny. And, like, what do you think the purpose of that contrast was for? Maybe uh, he's just pointing out the absurdity of this uh, judicial system. Yeah, and maybe that the the ones carrying out this justice are not subject to the same sorts of rules as the ones who um, are being accused, right? Yeah, it's a tough one. <laughs> I didn't even realize that he had fallen asleep. That was really funny um, when you when you pointed that out. Yeah, I don't know. I think that the punishment, obviously, like to our modern lens, seems like it's way out of whack. But at the same time, it's not so far removed from how we live today. We still have the death penalty, right? It's not a 12-hour slow torture, but it's still, you know, still will kill you at the end. So it's, of course, it seems like a very foreign form of punishment. And of course, it seems as if the punishment does not fit the crime. But one of the things I thought was so interesting about uh, the story is that we're not kind of thrown in the middle of this kind of debate of whether in the penal colony, this is a just outcome. Um, We're not at some sort of turning point in the opinions of society. Instead, we kind of see this situation in its kind of death throes, right? It's on its last legs. This form of punishment is on the way out. It's a changing of the guard. And these old forms of punishment are no longer seen as justice. And so we see just the kind of nail in the coffin as opposed to a traditional story where you're kind of thrust into the to the middle of things and you experience the conflict as it plays out. Um, we're kind of seeing that post-conflict part of the story, which I thought was kind of unique. Right. There's a moment where the traveler goes through a very similar realization, which I found very interesting in the fact that uh, it, it plays into the same realization that the reader undergoes where it's like, this is not an acceptable form of behavior. This is not an acceptable process. And there are changes that are on the horizon. Like, I mean, as you said, you're coming at the death throes of this machine, which is, is an, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting time to come into the story as it removes you from a lot of the context. But yeah, with that, it, the same realization that the traveler undergoes when he finally puts the pieces together that his opinion is uh, really just meant to drive home the opinion of the new commandant. So there's that relief in knowing that this isn't something that will be continued and that there is like a, a negative a negative perception of it. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way it wouldn't be as strong of a story if we were just thrust into the middle of this debate of whether this is just punishment or not. I think because... It's at that last, it's on its last legs. It becomes a much more interesting story because if you throw us in the middle of this debate, it's going to be way too obvious to us as readers which side to come down on. Whereas this makes it a much more interesting story where it's not necessarily about is this form of justice appropriate to our modern eyes. Instead, it becomes more of a story about, you know, so many different things like the officer holding on to his convictions, how how societies undergo change, and of course, just many other launching off points. But I think that Kafka's decision to put us at the end of things as opposed to in the middle of things uh, was a very smart one in terms of making this an engaging and interesting story. Right. And the words that I always come back to when I think of this story are the words slippery slope, because it puts us at like the very 
foot bottom of this the slope where it it kind of like it gives you this gross exaggeration that challenges you and makes you come to this opinion. Uh, and then, of course, the discussion that follows suit is where is the line drawn that this level of absurdity is no longer permissible? How do you roll it back in such a way that you come to that happy equilibrium where there is a level of fairness to it? And in using that extremist case in a surrounding which is best described as natural and savage, being so far removed from civilization, that question of where where punishment and the judicial process becomes fair is kind of like the following point. Right. Oliver, what do you think? Just thinking here. When are you guys going to just like masturbate some philosopher names? <laughs> That's uh, coming up. 30-minute mark. <laughs> just edging right now. I'm getting, I'm getting closer and closer to explode. <laughs> so why doesn't the new commandant... Why doesn't the new commandant just shut this guy down? Well, that's a good like, question. Because on on page two, the officer is like alluding to how how powerful the old commandant was, and how like it will take years to shut his plans down. Hmm. Oh, dude, it's as if you just threw me one uh, to just uh, you know drop a uh, drop some philosophy now. Oh shit! Um, <laughs> here is why I think that the commandant is using the traveler as a mere means to advance his political agenda, that is, rid his penal colony of this apparatus. And that is because of, well, at least in the mind of Foucault, in his book, Discipline and Punishment, he makes the case that shifts in societal practices like this, when it comes to disciplining and uh, punishing societies, these shifts do not take place because of moral considerations, but instead these shifts take place based on notions of utility, pragmatism, economics, etc., etc. And so the commandant is using the traveler to make a case to his public administrative body because it is not enough for him to rely on simply saying that this is morally wrong to do this to individuals because that is not enough to push the needle in terms of changing society. You need more than that. And the outside opinion of a traveler coupled with things such as the lowering attendance of the public to these executions, the fact that they are no longer um, fulfilling the role that they used to be fulfilling in society, that is embodying a kind of spectacle of the power of the state and the state's sovereign's power over the individual's body in that society, that has now been, it's no longer attended by the people in the society. It no longer carries that weight. And so the traveler is used uh, in tandem with many of these other more economic and utilitarian considerations to throw these to throw this practice out of the window because the new commandant cannot merely rest on the fact that he thinks this is morally wrong. That is not enough to make change in society. So yeah, that was a lot. And um, one of the interesting things, just to throw a bit more out there, is he like Foucault's whole thing is like, how does the shift between uh, public forms of execution and public punishment move? Like, how do we move past this as a society? So before, these public forms of punishment are all about enacting revenge on the convict's body. And so this is a public form of state power being represented in spectacle to the people who view that. But the negative consequences of doing something like that 
are um, a the viewer has the viewer of the execution has kind of the opposite reaction to that spectacle. They actually feel very bad for the people who have to be put on display like this, and they feel sympathy for that body that's being decimated. And so, as a result of that, the blame is actually shifted away from the person who is convicted of the crime, who is up for the death penalty or whatever it may be, and is instead shifted to be put on the punisher, the one who is carrying out the punishment, the one who is ordering the public executions, and the one who is enacting this, uh, this torture. And so I think that the story is great because it puts us in that perspective. Even as I read the story, I feel much sympathy for the condemned man, um, not only because his punishment is way out of whack um, in terms of how it's, you know, is it in proportion to his punishment, but also I feel instead of blame for what he did wrong, even though what he did is unambiguously wrong according to the penal colony's law of falling asleep at a shift, my blame is instead put on A, the officer who is doing the punishing, and B, the old commandant who is, um, you know, enacting this as a law. So based off of the perspective of that philosophy, is that which is wrong with the process, the punishment or the judicial process? Because if you wanted to take a utilitarian economical perspective to the judicial process, having that gross oversimplification, it might not create like a moral good, but it creates a practical good in the fact that punishment is swift. Uh, and it sounds like what one would take most opposition to in this story would be the punishment itself and how it's enacted as opposed to how the judicial process comes to the conclusion that punishment is necessary. Yeah, that's very interesting. For me, at least I can say, if I you know think back, I, st I think that actually it is, it is the way in which the, the condemned is punished that holds more weight than how he was processed. One final thing for Foucault, this, this shift from public displays of punishment to a more kind of behind the scenes administrative disciplinary society, he doesn't necessarily see that as, you know, this great moral victory or this great bit of progress. He's merely just examining this historical shift and trying to uh, see why it happened. But yeah, it's an interesting question because I think I see, I see both things as wrong. A, the way that he is punished and B, how... Like he is accused and the fact that he has no trial at all as well. Those are both bad. What do you think, uh, Oliver? Yeah, I kind of like that idea of it, it just being a huge exaggeration because this machine just seemed quite, I kind of, upon my first reading, I kind of thought it was funny almost, like black humorish. Um, just imagine this the giant machine or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Picturing Buddy licking, licking the fucking rice pudding is just lying butt so naked. Funny, man. So funny. <laughs> terrifying and sad but also like uh i don't know well when you think about it in practice it's so so demoralizing but like you said um it's just so much work to to maintain this giant machine just to kill someone with no audience <laughs> yeah you're right and so there there is the absurd element of this whole thing right and, and then um, they also like he just they throw the body as soon as it's done they throw him in the pit and bury him and no one reads what was written on his body so it's like what's the point <laughs> <laughs> exactly, which which maybe I know, which is because it's about the spectacle, it's not about what he was accused of, right? Yeah. Um, 
It's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think the absurdity of it is is actually hilarious. And you know, upon when I heard you tell me that, and I read it a second time, you're right. Like, I'm just picturing Buddy getting inscribed <laughs> with a thousand needles on his back because he's like licking away at a tub of rice pudding. <laughs> God. Um, but I think that's uh, that's exactly ties back to what you said earlier, Brennan, where Kafka can kind of use this extreme case to illustrate a point that is maybe more applicable to, to a real-world uh, situation. Right, and I feel like Kafka as an individual was someone who was extremely afraid of judgment. You definitely got that feeling from the metamorphosis and the fact that he felt extremely judged by all individual. Sorry, the character in the metamorphosis felt extremely judged by all the individuals around them, uh, including their own family. And in that judgment came a condemnation that the character and possibly Kafka in a very allegorical sense could not really argue or challenge in any way. I feel like he had this perception of society where they almost play the role of the officer or the old commandant where it's like there's the punishment, the judgment is made, you're inscribed with it, and there's um, a metaphorical torture that follows. Uh, this is a really terrible example as, as an analogy, but there's that old joke where it's like, you know, if you have sex with one goat, you're called a goat fucker for life. And <laughs> I feel like that's kind of how he felt with his anxieties and his strange personal characteristics. You know, you, you get labeled with this identity. Uh, it's a judgment without trial. It's There is like a, a kind of a jury in this judgment, but like there is no trial I feel like he is kind of like the condemned in this story where it's penalized for something that, you know, maybe he's done, maybe he hasn't, but does the punishment fit the crime? Does the process fit the crime? Uh, and what does that say about the character of the individual that is being punished for this as well? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting when you talk about Kafka's hesitance to pass judgment and his his characters have a hesitance to pass judgment as well. And I think that you really see that with the traveler in this um in this story. Uh where he like he's obviously been brought here to serve a certain purpose for a certain person, and that is to just come, you know, do your thing, show up, see the process, and then just outwardly condemn everything that goes on here. And just throw the officer under the bus. He is unequivocally bad person. This entire societal practice is needs to be thrown out the window. And you know, I guess you would expect that kind of impassioned condemnation of this entirely. But actually, the traveler is much more careful um, in what he says about this whole process. And he actually goes out of his way to to just be like to to kind of reduce his role in judgment of everything and is the actual power he has over changing this society and um he actually has the ability to see some uh, level of nuance in the officer himself as well whereas even though he might not agree in the practices that he is engaging in um he's at least able to give him a positive evaluation of his character as well i think he that the traveler somewhat admires the fact that the officer is so strong in his convictions and he sees some sort of saving grace here. So he, even like the traveler as well, he's kind of hesitating with his, you know, strong judgments as well. But then he just takes off at the end. <laughs> yeah, then he dips. 
and he kicks the people who want to escape with him out of there. <laughs> Bastard. Really so does funny. he just represent our like Western, just our inability to take action as our uh, more um, I'm, I'm, modern? I'm glad you brought up the role of the traveler because that's something that I always come back to every single time that I read this where I still can't really identify if the traveler is meant to be a representation of civilization, if it's meant to be the reader, if it's meant to be like a new societal ideology. Like, what do you guys think the traveler is meant to be as a role in this story? Right now, I'm kind of leaning towards he represents us, the reader, and our just our inability to like step in and intervene with these sorts of things. I um, I liked... I actually really liked your take on who he was, Oliver, because uh, I'm kind of just, I kind of just a light bulb kind of lit up in my head. But yeah, like I, 30 seconds ago or five minutes, a minute ago, I was giving this guy praise for not being strong in his convictions and not outwardly judging something like this. But then the way that you frame the traveler is like, no, 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 this is a character who has the inability or has an inability to outwardly condemn these things, right? He's not strong enough in his convictions at all. Instead, he's kind of hedging, right? And it's interesting if he does then represent the more Western view of the kind of traditional Western individual traveling to foreign cultures, then actually it's quite interesting when you consider more real-life implications like the degree to which us as Western individuals are able to condemn other cultural practices and should we uh, condemn them if we think they are wrong? Are we in any position to? Is our opinions any less valid or more valid? So yeah, that's a very interesting take on it. Like to what degree can an outsider like the traveler here condemn or judge uh, cultural practices um, of a culture that he is not a part of? And that's more of a, that's a wider political kind of thing too, which we don't need to get into. <laughs> it, it, um, is yeah. it is interesting. It is interesting that like, Traveler is always referred to as the foreigner um, and instilling that sense of separation between him and the people that are actually inhabiting the penal colony. Like we don't know if they're from the same background or if they're of the same nationality. We just know that there are the inhabitants of the penal colony and then this traveler that's a foreigner. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I guess like my immediate thought was, yeah, of course he represents us, the reader, but. Um, I think if you go into more depth, like what kind of a reader are we talking about here, right? Um, is Kafka asking us to examine how we how we judge other cultural practices? Is the traveler's approach to judging them here right or wrong or good or bad, um, effective or not effective? Um, is he in a is he in less of a position to judge something like this uh, torture apparatus because he is an outsider, or is that distinction irrelevant? Um, I have many questions and uh, a few answers. So, Oliver, just to kind of go back to your depiction of the Traveler or your interpretation of the Traveler, you, you mentioned that he was hedging. Do you feel like he has any kind of absolute opinion towards what's taking place? I think from what I got of the story, he does have an opinion, but doesn't he say that he do, he can't express that opinion or he can't do anything about it? Mm-hmm. But do you feel like it's an absolute opinion or do you think it's more reactionary? Isn't there a moment where he like smirks? That's, that? that's when he finds out uh, that the new commandant is kind of using him 
as a way to prove a point. And then that's his sort of moment of realization where it's like, you know, I'm not here um, to wait. Like he's not there to participate in an argument. He's there to prove a point by bringing in the outsider's perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's being used as a mere means to advance someone else's agenda. Yeah. Because I mean, he does outwardly say, no, I don't agree with this practice. Right. So that is one thing. But at the same time, he does not take many actions to to act out those convictions. I guess he does write a letter to the commandant, right? But you kind of see him as kind of disconnected, not particularly passionate or disgusted or outraged by what is in front of him. And that might just be in the, because of the nature of the, the story that he's in. All the characters kind of seem that way, which is interesting in itself. Yeah, that's a tough one. Like he does outwardly say no, but he does nothing. And like you say, Oliver, he he just kind of dips. He just kind of <laughs> runs away, right? Um, he also does he, nothing when the officer gets into the straps himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess he tries to-ish, but... Um, <laughs> No, yeah, know, please, no, <laughs> no. So okay, well that's a that's a good. How do you feel about him getting into the machine at the end? Um, yeah, why, because, why does he do this? Like, does the machine have some sort of like magical magnetic quality to it? Like religious almost? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a bit much. Um, but I guess like if his identity is so wrapped up in this apparatus, then he might see in himself uh, some sort of a Christ figure or someone who's going to, like a captain who's going down with his ship. He probably sees his act as something very noble and something that he's very proud and he will you know, not go gently into that good night and he will go down with this apparatus as it, uh, as it destructs. Um, so I think that he probably thinks that he's up to a very heroic act, but as a reader, yeah, I thought it was like a little bit, a little bit much. It did kind of feel like a martyrdom where it was him dying for the cause. But like at the same time, the other feeling that I got from it was it's kind of like the machine had to end with him. He wanted to be the closure to the story where if those ideologies were not going to exist, if it was not going to be maintained, then he wanted to go with it. I think that speaks volumes to his convictions and it creates an interesting juxtaposition between the convictions of the officer and the convictions of the traveler because the officer is willing to die for his cause. The traveler, as we've mentioned, just leaves. He doesn't (laughs) see it like take that shift. He doesn't see it undergo any type of change. He just kind of he, he leaves. He, he doesn't feel as strongly, doesn't have that strong sense of conviction. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of mismatch. I would like to see the kind of, like I would like to see them trade attitudes and behaviors. So personally, I would like to see the traveler condemn this act and be very strong in his condemning of it. And then I would like to see the officer actually be kind of loose in changing his mind and have the ability to like, oh, okay, well, I'm actually not that strong in my convictions. I see I've been wrapped up in an ideology here and I can change my mind and I can move past this. But it's interesting because they just have the wrong traits, right? What do you think about that? 
it's it's kind of interesting because it, it speaks volumes to the the inability to change the incumbent traditionalist view the way that those individuals are more likely to stick to their perspectives and and try to enforce it as something societal moving forward versus the new force that's coming in like the incumbent will always be difficult to shake in order to instill a new ideology yeah and like the traveler kind of admires the officer's ability to kind of dig his heels in and not give in whereas i guess i'm not so sure i don't i personally don't i don't feel that same sort of admiration because throughout the entire story i see the officer as someone who is so caught up in his own head and so caught up in the system around him that at no point does he take a step back and question what it is that he's doing. There's no room for ambiguity and no room for self-reflection in his actions. So yeah, I was actually maybe a bit disappointed in the traveler to, for him to see such courage and nobility in the officer's act. At least in my opinion, uh, I, I don't think so. And one point that Oliver brought up that I thought was really good was he mentioned the officer and the apparatus as like an artistic performance. Do you want to just kind of expand oh, yeah, on that a yeah. Because I really like that uh, point. Yeah, because throughout the whole story, he's trying to showcase to the traveler how magnificent this machine works. And yeah, he's almost like prepping the show for the traveler. And he gets all pissed off when there's throw up and... <laughs> Like, yeah, like his, uh, his performance is like kind of going off the rails, right? Pieces of yeah. the machine are breaking. Um, yeah, like it's his, his main actor is not, uh, you know, not doing what he should be. Sorry, Colin. Because it's, it's his performance that will uh, hopefully convince the traveler, like you mentioned in your uh, write-up, Yana, trying to convince the traveler to kind of um, get swayed to his side. Yeah, and so I was very interested in that. That's a, such a good point that he really, the whole thing is really a kind of circus act and it's kind of, it's him trying to convince this foreign this foreign body coming to see his performance and he wants everything to be perfect. And and so, uh, like, the question that I wrote is, like, is this, like, a genuine last-ditch effort by the officer to convince the traveler? Does he actually think that he can bring this practice back if he convinces the traveler? Or, or because it, throughout the whole story, it seems like he also knows that it's a kind of inevitability that this practice will be shut down. But he also seems so strong in his belief that the traveler can actually help him bring it back. And so, is this genuine, or is this just an act as well? I was, I, I don't, I was kind of confused here. Or is he just like a sadist who really enjoys this, and it's his art? Yeah, and maybe like this last effort is not to bring the practice back. Maybe it's just to make his last act or his last performance uh, uh, great to his single one-person audience. I don't know. Well, you know what they say about sadists? They say, or sorry, about masochists. Masochists are just sadists with a strong sense of sharing. So it is very possible that he takes those sadistical qualities and just applies it to himself. I really love this notion of him seeing it as a performance, though, and that being like his art he sees like an almost like a beauty in the process uh, oliver picked out a quote once the machine is set in this position the steel cable tightens up into a rod and now the performance begins the very fact that the execution has this performance like quality the fact that there's this showmanship to it that there should be an audience watching it 
it really speaks to the officer as like this extremely demented artist where the act of um, torturing human beings is his canvas on which he paints with his very sadistic brush. Yeah. And so I guess when you frame it like that, maybe his, he just kind of seems like the crazy, crazy artist type to hop into his own machine as his kind of grand finale. Right. It makes kind of logical sense for him to do that since it's kind of in line with his, with his performative character. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't buy it personally, but I thought it was a, you know, (laughs) but it was a, it was a nice, it was a nice gesture at the very least. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. And of course, uh, one, like the nice bit is that he actually does not get to have his performance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The machine breaks down on him and, and actually it just, like he doesn't get to experience what he has been enacting. Um, so he does not get his redemption, which I thought was actually kind of nice in a kind of black humor, dark way that he gets stabbed in the head. <laughs> My interpretation was that of that was that it was deliberate, that he wanted the machine to die with him. Did, uh, did the uh, diagram of Be Just cause the machine to break down? Ooh, that's an interesting point too. Damn, yeah, I never thought of that. Huh. The machine, like, like and that kind of goes back to the very, very first point that you made of like the machine being a character where like this character through like the, the narrative has this almost sentience where it's like it can't enact being just. It can't have a punishment of be just because it is self-aware knowing that it's not a just object. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. Great point. Yeah. I, I, so much of this. The story seems to be about aesthetics, aesthetics of the performance of the officer, how the machine itself is actually described, the ways in which the people are tortured in this very dramatic way, the way that the officer describes the spectacle of the executions back in the quote unquote good old days. So much about it of the story is about the grand spectacle of public executions and how that has been kind of lost. And so one of the interesting things, again, about the story is that you actually get no information, A, in terms of what the society or the penal colony in general is like, and B, I, at least unless I missed it, I got no sense or no facts about what the new form of justice in the penal colony was going to be other than the brief paragraph about the kind of tribunal coming together in a kind of common room area with the commandant. But you get very little in terms of like, okay, so this old form of justice has now been basically condemned and phased out of society, but we get very little indication about what has been brought in. Yeah, there's no indication that it's going to be that much better. Yeah. Um, it seems to be, yeah, I don't know. I got, I got no indication. Like it seemed like they were trying to make it more communal, I guess. Um, whereas before it seemed like basically complete totalitarianism, whereas the new commandant at least wants to, you know, introduce some outside opinions and talk to some other representatives of the penal colony. So, I mean, I guess they frame it as progress. Yeah, just another interesting executive decision by Kafka to leave that out entirely. Um, How do we make sense of the, the, the scene in the tea house when they come across the old commandant's grave? Have we talked about that yet or? No. Um, yeah. Do you want to just quickly describe the ending? I'm not sure we captured that in um, the summary. And again, of course, 
our audience should be reading the stories, but please, um, please audience and buy me a microphone. <laughs> you find our Amazon link uh, on the website. Let me tell you about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, <laughs> it will get you a great candidate in one day. Pay me ZipRecruiter. Anyways. Uh, so yeah, uh, let's just summarize what happens after that little star, star, star bit. Take it away, Oliver. Oh gosh, I'm terrible at summaries. Um, so from what I remember, he goes to the tea house and then the soldier and the condemned, condemned man, they follow him. And then he, he finds the old commandant's grave underneath like a table or something. Right. And then it says... I think that the gravestone was so low that a table can fit over top of it. Right. That's what they said. Which I guess is a sign of it being a very insignificant grave. Yeah, because he wasn't allowed to be buried in the churchyard. Or, um, and then on his tombstone, I think it says something like, there exists a prophecy that the commandant will rise again after a certain number of years from this house will lead his followers to a reconquest of the colony. Um, and then the... So we should talk about that. And then also when the traveler leaves... Both the soldier and the condemned man try and get on the boat, and the traveler pushes them the hell away, which is interesting as well. Did he use like a rope to like whip them or something? That's what I imagined. <laughs> Ruthless. <laughs> Ruthless. <laughs> Just hit them with the paddles. <laughs> <laughs> um, he yeah, picked up a heavy knotted rope from the boat bottom, threatened them with it, and then thus. Yeah, so I guess he was threatening to whip them. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Christ. Interesting. So one of the one of the things that I just picked up on as you described the ending there, Oliver, was that like judging by the old commandant's very small grave and the fact that he cannot be buried in the high profile spot seems like the old commandant his passing was like he he no longer had the respect of his people. He he does not have a massive shrine uh, in remembrance of him. Um, instead, he is kind of been buried with a certain level of disrespect which is interesting because it means the society may have moved on a little bit or maybe they were ready for his death they may, may have moved on before his death and it was not his death and the new commandant necessarily that caused uh, caused these changes they might have already been happening beforehand i also found like the um the inscription to be of significance as well, or at least to be an interesting facet of the whole burial and him being marginalized in death, because there's like this almost uh, ominous threat where it's like, have faith and wait, the commandant will rise again, and like the followers will have a reconquest of the colony. Like, there was clearly some kind of divide that preceded the narrative of, this, of the story. Like, the story has that in medias res aspect of it where you're dropped in the middle of the occurrence uh, through the traveler at which is eventually discovered to be the tail end of this ideology but to have that sort of that threat on the tombstone it was almost like it, it was ironic the fact that this marginalized hidden tombstone had this threat of uh, usurpation yeah the tombstone had a threat of usurpation while being marginalized and like the threat comes across as like this almost uh, childlike threat because there's no level of respectability to it from this tombstone covered up by a table in a tea house. Yeah, the inscription. I'm just rereading the inscription. Let's maybe uh, read it. It says, Here rests the old commandant 
his followers, who are now not permitted to have a name, buried him in this grave and erected this stone. There exists a prophecy that the Commandant will rise again after a certain number of years, and from this house will lead his followers to a reconquest of the colony. Have faith and wait. Which, um, I don't know, one of the things I immediately take away from that is that he was clearly not buried by the new uh, state or the new regime, right? This was clearly a, clearly a burial done by his last few followers. There was no sort of changing passing of the guard officially. There was no sort of public recognition of the state as to the death of uh, the old commandant. It seems as if it was actually just his followers that have received the body and have buried him that way, which maybe leads me to think like maybe he... Maybe he didn't die of natural causes even. Yeah, that, that's a cool idea. And I guess that's the beauty of the story is you can just take it in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Lots of ambiguity, lots of unanswered questions. Yeah, and I love that there's such strong implications for something happening before we come into the story. Having that ambiguity in those things that preceded the events, um, it's something where you, you can try to rationalize it based off of what we observe happening, but... The truth is, there's probably so much more depth to what actually occurred than we are made aware of. Yeah, and I think that there are there are hints as well. I, I just find myself now fascinated in what the background or the context of this whole situation is. Specifically, if I look back at the line of the gravestone, where it says, his followers who are now not permitted to have a name, that specifically is like, okay, this new guard, this new commandant, this new society that has been ushered in is framed, at least at the beginning of the story, as the kind of more just, more fair, more equal, um, bringing about greater change. But they seem to be, at least according to the gravestone, engaging in the same sorts of subjugation, maybe some form of elitism. So um, maybe they are not so uh, just as they make themselves out to be. And even the traveler who you know can come and condemn this practice, he is not exactly engaging in the most virtuous behavior at the end of the story either in fending off the people who want to escape the penal colony. So no one escapes. Um, no one here in the story is a moral hero. Everyone um, has at least some element of both good and bad in their character. Right. And I, I love the connotation of being called the penal colony as well and being reduced to a penal colony because even just the name itself has that connotation of a lack of civility, of criminals, of, of punishment, and stripping a location of any possible civility. Like, what's in a name of a city? It, it doesn't really entail much, but as soon as you reduce something to the identity of a penal colony, it has this implicit savagery to it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, just as the the names of the characters are reduced to a specific role, so is the name of the the society. Any other things you guys want to hit on? Just like I have one last point that I thought was pretty interesting, and that was the role of the uniform, where the officer had a lot of respect towards his uniform, but in particular, there was one quote where it was. Uh, the traveler was lamenting like the difficulty of being fully dressed and garbed in this really intense heat. And in reference to the uniforms, uh, he's questioning why they wear them. And the officer responds that they mean home and we don't want to lose our homeland. Now, granted, in that instance and in all other instances, homeland does not come with a name. We don't know what the homeland is, but 
in these characters who are bizarrely stripped of any kind of um, socially aware behavior or of any kind of civil punishment um, to have these characters who have such strong bonds to what it means to be from these areas which are implied to be of a civil nature and these these efforts to retain such a civil nature it's bizarre that they find themselves participating in these really depraved activities when it comes to punishment we also don't know if the officer is actually from the homeland or if he's just internalized the oppression from the colonizers or whatever right because he can speak he can speak the language that the uh, condemned man can speak yeah, the language thing is interesting too. Like the more that I think about it, the less because upon like first or second read through, I really thought that this was just the death of an old guard and just the birth of a new one. But I'm seeing some more. There might be some more colonial undertones here, um, some sort of conquest that has taken place, subjugation of um, the old peoples in the society who wish to reclaim the you know the homeland which probably has a lot more to do with many other things and is not specifically centered around just as one form of punishment there might actually be other aspects to the homeland that are just not mentioned here that they want to recapture as well um yeah very interesting there's obviously the more that we talk about it the more i'm thinking like yeah this whole changing of the guard might not have been so so smooth and that just goes into like it's not as clear in the story that progress has been so clearly made and it's so linear here, right? It's not just, okay, we had this old practice, we realize that it's bad and we move on, right? There's a lot more going on here. Progress is not linear. You know, there's a lot more in the background that's happening too. There needs to be like this almost reduction to the the people that are participating in this conflict, granted the conflict that we are not subject to, but there's this reduction of people to these more barbaric acts in instances of usurpation because you know if you can't overthrow you can't overthrow uncivil activity with civil approaches it just it doesn't really work that way how are you going to overthrow a dictator you have to do it through force because like you can't really reason with an individual who exhibits a lack of reasoning uh, in the first place so there's definitely strong implications that there was uh, some sort of aggressive usurpation because how else are you supposed to overthrow a character like the old commandant who's described in a position of absolute power almost to the impo- almost to the point of omnipotence yeah so like the the uniform thing is mentioned very early in the story i think on the is it the first page, page? one page yeah. one just just well done by Kafka for just dropping these little breadcrumbs in there right where uh, on subsequent subsequent read-throughs and discussions, um, you realize that all is not as it initially seems. There's lots to latch onto here, dealing with insufficient information, so we rely on lots of our own conjecture too. Yeah, that's a uh, it's interesting. And yeah, how do you take down a dictator, right? Um, you can't exactly engage in the most humane and civil manners, like you say, right? So this new form of government, this new commandant who claims to throw this practice out because it's uncivilized and barbaric might have actually engaged in some of those same types of practices on a larger scale to get where he is now. I think I've covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing that, I don't know, I guess we already 
No, we already talked about that. Like, why does the officer think that he can convince the traveler to make a case for them? But yeah, I guess we already talked about that as well. It might not even be about actually changing the society. What did you guys think of the story just as a short story? Well, this was my first time reading Kafka because I've always been kind of intimidated by him as a writer for some reason. You always hear the term is Kafka-esque, whatever. Is that the right term? Mm -hmm. Kafka-esque? Yeah. Um, So this is my first dive into him. Um, First read, I didn't really enjoy the writing, but uh, subsequent reads, it got better and better. Nice. Yeah, for me, I'm the same. I have not read much Kafka. I read The Metamorphosis, and that's it. And I actually really didn't like it. Um, I like this a lot better, personally. Yeah, I mean, the language is not particularly flowery, but I think that that's part of what makes Kafka who he is, that very kind of outside, view-from-nowhere, kind of disconnected vibe of his uh, language. Was, it was interesting to... I just feel like I was a very passive observer, right? You don't really get into the minds of his characters. You instead kind of watch them from above, which was interesting when reading the story. Yeah, I read it twice. And yeah, as I already mentioned, I like that there's a lot here and there's a lot that he doesn't exactly explicitly tell us about. And it's on us to work with each other to, um, you know, to do our best to figure out what's going on in the background too. Um, So I actually really like that about the story. I love the fact that in our initial discussion of Kafka, one word that you both brought up was black humor in the fact that it is so factual and absolute with its language that there's a level of of absurdity to it. And um, I think that absurdity is certainly with purpose in stating things so matter-of-factly. There's meant to be this bizarre, jarring experience where you're encountering a description of something that can be extremely horrific, but in the way that it's described, the horrific qualities of it are marginalized by its factual, to-the-point diction. Um, In the descriptions of the machine, like at various points, I found myself to be intrigued. At various points, I found myself to be bewildered by the intricate nature of it. But at no point did I acknowledge it as the grotesque, like this grotesque uh, fixture of capital punishment. And I think that the language plays a role in that by stating things so matter-of-factly. I think there is this attempt by Kafka to state things in such an absolute factual regard that it's meant to really disorient you when you are looking at it from... Um, a more omniscient perspective. Um, One piece of writing that I kind of bring to mind when when reading this was Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, where he talks about eating children, essentially. And um, it was a very similar feeling when reading that, where all of a sudden there's this moment of realization where it clicks. There's this shift in the reader where they realize that something that is written in such a factual, uh, in in that case, argumentative regard, is actually trying to prove an opposing point. And I feel like that's what Kafka's trying to do in this piece of work and in The Metamorphosis. He's describing things in such a factual, absolute regard that there is that moment of realization where it's like, this is not the perspective of the writer this is not the perspective of the characters 
there's just this level of absurdity that you need to wrap your head around. And having that moment of realization is much more powerful. Um, and you have to give credit to him as a writer for instilling that feeling and instilling that experience into ourselves as the omniscient observer. Well done. I think uh, I think that's a great spot to leave it. What a beautiful way to uh, to wrap up that the story. Very well put. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was fucking awesome. I had a great time. I hope you enjoyed it as well, Brennan. Yeah, it was yeah, very Thanks good. so much for coming on. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I got to talk about a story that I haven't talked about since I was a teenager. So. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, yeah, this was, this was great. Um, we're always happy to have you. I'm sure this won't be the last time you come on the podcast. Well done, boys. Uh, just a quick note <laughs> right. to uh, any listeners out there. I do have a PayPal. Uh, <laughs> hit me up. I will give you the link. I accept mm-hmm. every and all donations. Get Brendan a mic. <laughs> Get me a mic. I'm using some shit. Get him a blue, blue snowball Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, like, dude. What's some $15 Amazon shit? So come on. <laughs> if you want to hear nice. the points that I make in greater detail, call me up. Hit me up. We've got people manning the phones. Let's get me a mic. 